This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. One of the ongoing stories, and boy, it always seems to come up again onto the front burner around budget time, which is now uh, for this municipality, is the fate of the Waterfront Trust, uh, the funding for the Waterfront Trust, the actions of the Waterfront Trust, and a whole lot of other stories and questions about that. It's uh, something that uh, some media organizations have been prying into uh, without a whole lot of success. The city has been less than cooperative sometimes and less than forthcoming in the way that uh, things have been going on. Well, uh, we find out today that the chair of the Waterfront Trust actually resigned quietly late last month with uh, no public announcement. Resignation was effective as the middle of December. Bob Charters uh, had been affiliated in one way or or another with the Waterfront Trust really since its inception. And uh, it's a bit of a surprise to find out that uh, Mr. Charters has decided to step down. Joining us to talk about this and the implications, John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer, who have uh, spent considerable time uh, looking into the Waterfront Trust, and uh, always uh, great to get his insight into this. John, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Uh, were you surprised by this announcement? Um, not entirely. Uh, certainly had no inkling it was happening, but, uh, you know, uh, you, you saw a little bit of uh, what might have been a, a sort of a foreshadowing of this at that October meeting uh, when Donna Skelly attempted to get a, a an audit uh, done on the Waterfront Trust, uh, she uh, couldn't get a seconder for her motion as as council did their usual circle the wagons act. But there was a, a moment there where um, uh, Councillor Farr, who is a member of the trust, uh, sort of alluded to a little bit of an internal division between uh, some of the members and the chair over the issue of whether or not they should be releasing uh, minutes uh, going back several years. And there, you, you could see that, there, in fact, he, he flatly acknowledged that there had been a disagreement at one of their board meetings over that, and, and uh, you know, Farr's view that they should share the minutes prevailed. So, you know, you could see just little bits of it uh, starting to emerge, that maybe it wasn't total unanimity on that board. Uh, whether that was a factor, I, I, I wouldn't speculate, but, but certainly, you know, it's been a trying time for, for the organization really for the last 10 years, uh, you know, trying to find really a reason to continue to exist. It's, it's interesting because there's so many different angles to this, uh, and, and it seemed to me at times, John, that, uh, that public interest in this uh, ebbed and flowed from time to time. There, there was a time when there was great interest in this, and then all of a sudden, well, they just let them do what they want. I guess council seems to have the, a handle on this. And then we got a pretty good inkling that council didn't really have a handle on this. As a matter of fact, I don't think anybody did. But if there's one common thread through an awful lot of the concern and a number of the, the stories you've written about this, I, that, I think that word would be accountability, wouldn't it? It really would. Um, there's, you know, it's, it's hard to see even now, uh, just with the resignation of uh, Mr. Charter's uh, the fact that, you know, the issue was made that, you know, that happened two, a month ago and uh, nobody knew about it. And everything that happens with that organization is kind of under the radar screen. Uh, when they appear before council, there's never a package submitted uh, in advance the way it is for most organizations. They always walk on with their stuff. And uh, it just seems like uh, anything to do with the Waterfront Trust is also always carefully orchestrated uh, walking on eggshells, you know. And with regard to charters, it, it's not only that he had been involved. It really, the the Waterfront Trust was his creation. 
he was the point man for the city back before the Waterfront Trust got started. He was the point man negotiating a settlement with the uh, what was then the Hamilton Port Authority uh, over a long-standing dispute. And, and by port- extension, the federal government. Yes, and, and the issue there was that the port had been piling up uh, surpluses over the years and hadn't been sharing them with uh, the city because initially the Port Authority really was uh, a creation of the city uh, back, you know, a hundred years ago. But anyway, so the decades roll on and there was a strong feeling around City Hall that the Port or the Harbor Commission in those days owed the city some money. And uh, ultimately it got settled. Uh, the, the Fed stepped in with $20 million dollars I was uh, working as a consultant at the time uh, on behalf of the Port Authority, the Harbor Commission, and I, I recall the day in the lawyer's office when um, Sheila Kopp's assistant, Alice Williams, was there representing the minister, and uh, as they were about to sign the deal, she reached into a little purse and pulled out a check for $22 million, and of course everybody just, wow. That'll, that'll get know. your attention. But, but even that, just to give you an idea of how little trust there was, somebody was sent down to the bank to deposit the check, and they waited for a phone call uh, from the bank to indicate that the check had been deposited before they then signed the documents uh, agreeing. But part of that deal uh, was that $6 million of that $22 million would be set aside for the establishment of the Waterfront Trust. And, and so that was something that was negotiated by Bob Charters and so he really is the creator of the trust. He uh, was the point guy on city council at that time to try to get this. And it was an ugly uh, back and forth between uh, the, the Harbor Commission, the federal government, and the city. And uh, it was about water lots, who owned the lots, who owned the land, who was allowed to do what, etc. And And you're right. I mean, the offshoot of that was that great big check. Uh, there was the allotment of some of the water lots and the land, some of which, by the way, was that Marine Discovery Center. I don't know right. uh, which is no longer there. That's a restaurant now, but we could talk about that, too. Former there, restaurant. Yeah, there's there's a property that's uh, that's uh, gone through some significant controversy over the last number of years. But on and on it goes. But the, the essence of it, and I'm glad you went back because I think it's important to have that historical perspective on this, is that the whole creation of the idea of a waterfront trust was, okay, here's a whack of money. We need somebody to oversee how that money's going to be dispersed. Ergo, we have a waterfront trust. Now, the, 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 of course, the other element to this and the update to that is there's no more money, John. They spent right. it all. And, and, and in fairness, uh, you know, if people are wondering why uh, Mr. Charters resigned, and, and I don't have any inside information, but, you know, if you look at the first seven or eight years of the Waterfront Trust, uh, I mean, it was it was glory days. I mean, they were building uh, trails. Uh, massive uh, construction was going on. Everybody was happy with with, with what was uh, being produced. By well, the, the major the major was, of course, that trail that went from that pier all the way down through to Coots Paradise. That Absolutely. walking trail, which is which is wonderful and a great accomplishment. Well, and and you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but almost six million dollars of of trail and Confederation Park work all of which was uh, within uh, Ward 5 uh, at a time when Chad Collins, the, the, the ward councillor, was also the chair of the Waterfront Trust. So there was a lot of money spent, and uh, it, was a, you know, it was a time of great progress. Uh, there was, um, you know, the public was really enjoying being reconnected to the waterfront. But if you look at it from Charter's perspective, I mean, the last seven or eight years has really just been a, a grinded-out struggle for survival. And 
uh, after 17, 18 years of being involved with the organization, he could certainly be forgiven uh, for saying, you know, I, I think my time is gone. Well, he certainly put in his time. Of course, he spent, uh, I think it was eight, nine years, I guess, on city council before that. Uh, and then, of course, with amalgamation, uh, left city council and, and took over this this uh, of the Waterfront Trust. But the, and the concern, an unpaid position, uh, you know, he was a volunteer all those yeah. years. And he, he deserves some credit for that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I worked with Bob uh, for one term on city council, and he's he's a guy who was very dedicated to to the city and and to the well being of this. But my concern has always been, and I know I ruffle a lot of feathers with this, is when the the last dollar was spent from that money. What should have happened was the city should have said, thank you guys for your service. It's been great. You've got a great track record here. Now let's move on. Instead, they let the Waterfront Trust sit around, and basically they started feeding money to them. That's right. And, uh, you know, uh, it's been millions. Uh, There's undoubtedly going to be more money coming to them. Uh, You're really looking at an organization that has no long-term plan uh, for its existence, or if it does have a long-term plan for its existence, it's not being shared with the people who are footing the bill. So either way, it's it's not a good circumstance. Um, there's really no, you know, once those trails are built, they're turned over to the city. So even the maintenance of them is being done uh, by others. So I, I, I think it's, it's an organization in search of uh, a reason to exist, and it has been really, frankly, for the last eight or nine years. And I think any sensible person, whether you're on the board or not on the board, uh, recognizes that. Why then do, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, why does city council play defense every time anybody brings up any questions about the Waterfront Trust? You use the expression, circle the wagons, and I think that's very apt. It's just that they do not allow any bad talk about the Waterfront Trust. I know they don't keep books very well. Yeah, I know they're in arrears to Revenue Canada, but you know what? It's okay. You know, nothing to see here. That that seems to be the mantra. Well, uh, I, I can't explain it other than there does appear to be some kind of a fear factor. I don't, I don't think the majority on council really support the Waterfront Trust, but there's something holding them back from taking decisive action. Uh, I mean, we know that, uh, you know, uh, you know, Co- Councillor Collins, Marula's a big supporter, Farr, Jackson. I mean, they do represent a, a substantial influence block. They're some of the more senior people on, on council. They've been there longer than some of the other members. And um, whether there's uh, punishment available for people who speak out uh, against the Waterfront Trust, I think Donna Skelly might give you some advice on that score. Uh, she was left hanging uh, on, a, on a pretty modest proposal at the end of the day, um, a value for money audit. I, I would just like to see a business plan, uh, a five-year business plan that says, here's, here's what we've got uh, planned going forward. I mean, with this new budget system that council has introduced uh, this year, they're talking about all these department heads coming up with business plans now. They, they, they can't just say, here's our budget, we've tacked on 2%, this is what we'd like next year. They, they've got to come up with, a, with an actual activity and business plan. Be nice to see that from the Waterfront Trust, but I, I don't think it's forthcoming. The, the problem here is, is let's look forward, in which 
I, I think is, is, is a big picture here, and it's something that we need to talk about. You know, there's some pretty aggressive plans uh, for Pier 7 and 8 uh, down in that area. Uh, commercial development, maybe residential development, a lot of stuff's being talked about, and, and the city really seems to be moving that agenda. But for some reason, uh, known only to some city staff and I guess some city councillors, they feel that the Waterfront Trust can be a major part of that, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they have no money, uh, and, and they're really simply a, a, a flow-through agency when it comes, because the city funds it, the city does the maintenance on whatever it is that they build. All they really do is decide where they're going to build capital projects. And uh, I, we, I think, need to have a discussion about whether or not this is still a viable entity uh, as far as the city goes. I mean, they are de facto an arm of public works, but they're an arm's length uh, part of public works, really. Yeah, and last fall uh, we'd we'd heard from sources outside City Hall that there there may be a, a you know after the Sarcoa lawsuit uh, happened and the restaurant was shut down and that place was no longer a destination, uh, albeit maybe temporarily. Uh, starting to hear some buzz about the possibility of the footprint of the, of that massive Pier Eight development uh, maybe being extended to include the Sarcoa property uh, and and some up rest of the area that is now occupied by the trust, which would further raise the question of what really is the future of the organization. Uh, should uh, you know the, the condominium project uh, spread a little further to the west, so that that would raise a further issue of you know what's really going on there. It seems to me that if there were going to be a discussion about this, uh, as there was with Heckvi. You know, that was an agency that was set up at that time, supposedly arm's length, uh, that went through a, a number of different ebbs and flows about, you know, its, its, its efficiency to the point where the city council finally just blew it up and said, that's it, we're going to do this, and they, they contracted it out. Uh, for some reason, we're not there with the Waterfront Trust yet. I would suggest that this, the financial concerns are, are very similar uh, to, to what was going on at Heckvi at the time. A, a lot of bleeding going on that the city finally decided to do something about. They have, they're not there yet with the Waterfront Trust. No, they're not, although you keep hearing that, that staff have been asked to do a report um, uh, estimating the cost of taking the, the work of the Waterfront Trust in-house. Uh, I'm sure that report will support the continuation of the Waterfront Trust, given the political climate. But I, I guess what I would say is, how can you even do that kind of a study if you don't know what the future of the organization is in terms of what it's going to be doing, if you will, for a living? Is it is it in the restaurant business? Uh, is there is it in the construction business? Is it in, in effect a uh, a construction company that gets sole source construction work for ever? I guess uh, you know, there's a lot of questions there that uh, need to be shared with the people who are. Who are funding it, which is the taxpayers of Hamilton. Well, more importantly, there's a lot of answers that need to come out of this, too. Yep. We'll see how they respond to this, and obviously it's going to be part of the discussion of budget time over the next couple of months, and we'll certainly talk about it at that time, too. John, thanks as always. Great having you on the show. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the uh, remaining members of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, including Canada, apparently have reached an agreement in terms of a deal. Uh, the signing uh, of the agreement is going to happen sometime in March. Uh, this, uh, this is one of these stories that leaked because uh, the prime minister's, uh, well, halfway around the world over in Switzerland, obviously, at Davos, 
for a, a, a summit over there. And uh, word of this came up, which is a bit of a surprise, really, because uh, the story that we had heard uh, late last year was that uh, the prime minister was holding off on this because he had some major concerns, and the, Canada was the holdout in trying to get this revised deal. So this is a bit of a surprise story today in some people's minds. Joining us to talk about this, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Hey, Marvin, how are you today? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Did this uh, catch you by surprise? I'm going to say no, so let me just take you back to November. There was a meeting of what's known as APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Area, and uh, Canada was there, and at that time, there had been a hope that there'd be an announcement on TPP-11. You'll quite, maybe you'll remember, most people might remember, that there was supposed to be this big press conference uh, after a brief meeting where they were just going to rubber stamp the deal as it was at that point. And then our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, didn't show up. He didn't show up for the meeting. They canceled the press conference. They continued to talk all day, and then at the end of the day, they announced that they were getting close to a deal, that they really felt they needed one more round of negotiations, and that's really what led to this week. Uh, uh, in uh, Tokyo for them to meet and talk some more about this. Uh, what Justin was suggesting was he wasn't going to be rushed into a deal that he didn't think was good. And, and I suppose what I need to tell everybody is the difference between what we had when we had 12 members in TPP and 11 members, Justin successfully, I think, got a couple of clauses removed that the Americans wanted, in particular around things like copyrights and trademarks and patents, we weren't completely happy with them, but in the sake of getting a deal, we went along. Now that the Americans weren't there, we really felt those should be removed. And at the same time, we also felt there should be a little more strong language on environmental protection. That was another sticking point for the Americans. They weren't as keen to do that, but the other 11 members. So in a way, although we were the second largest economy of TPP-11, uh, our holdout and the negotiations this week, I think, have gotten a stronger deal. What we had announced today is that the partners have agreed to a deal. That doesn't mean they've signed on to it. There will be a formal signing ceremony in March. And then what that does is start a clock ticking up to two years for each member state to have to ratify it. Don't think ratification is going to be a problem here or in Japan. I, I think the smaller nations will also come along. This could all be ratified before the end of the year. So many different sidebar issues to this. Uh, I, I guess, first of all, the fact that these 11 have signed on, uh, indicates that there can be uh, a trade life after the United States backs out of a deal. Well, yes, and and in fact, if anything, I think the Americans backing out of the deal strengthened the resolve of these 11 nations to, to send a signal that uh, intergovernmental inter, uh, cooperation and trade really is the way of the future. All signs indicate that closer economic ties are really what's going to keep the world peaceful and, and prosperous. And even though Donald Trump seems to want to withdraw, put America first, build walls, etc., I think these 11 nations were even more uh, keen to do something. Just remember also in this deal, Bill, TPP-11, the real prize in here is Japan. It's sure. the third largest economy in the world, and Japan has never signed a free trade deal with anybody. The United States can argue, look, we've signed all kinds of trade deals, so we'd love to have you along with us, but... Japan was the big thing, and Japan notoriously, for as long as I've been teaching business, which is nearly 35 years, was known for really having barriers, walls, if you will. The fact that Japan is prepared to bring some walls down, this is great news for us in certain areas. For instance, our pulp and paper, uh, lumber, uh, beef, cattle, chicken, pork, all of these things that are, are you know, really Canadian backbone products are now going to have markets in Japan that they didn't really have access to before. 
Well, when you look down the list, I mean, that seems to be obvious. Uh, the other partners here besides Canada, Australia, Brunei, Chile, uh, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. And you can argue about the, you know, the, the credibility of, of those, but Japan seems to be the big one. Uh, you mentioned about a number of things that, that whose doors may be opened up to this. What about the auto industry? Because that's been a sticking point between Japan and Canada over the years, especially Japan and Ontario. Mm-hmm. I, absolutely. And so in this deal, there are uh, revised, revised wording around the auto industry. Uh, certainly nowhere near as extreme as what's uh, being talked about for NAFTA by the Americans. But I actually, again, think that Justin got some, some nice concessions here around the amount of Canadian content in, in uh, automobiles that were being made by the Japanese for the Canadian and North American markets. Um, he, he obviously, again, you can't take these things to extreme and say, well, then you must build your Japanese cars with 100% Canadian content. That would be a sort of a Trumpism the way he goes at it. But I think he got some nice concessions on this. And again, I showed Japan really, I think Japan views Canada as its entree into the American market, the North American market, a, a, a happier trading partner and one they can work with. Uh, oddly enough, again, I think if the United States suddenly said, well, now that you 11 have signed, let us join, I'm not sure they're going to rush to do that. In fact, there are a couple of people who are not in TPP 11 who might very well get in a little easier. The two that immediately come to mind that are not on the list of members is the Philippines and Indonesia. Those two economies, which are really almost invisible to most people listening to us, Bill, but those two economies are likely going to be among the top ten in the world by the end of this century. A great time to get them in now while they still can. And then, of course, there's that other rattling around in Asia, China. If China doesn't do a deal directly with us, their entry to this might be through a a revised TPP. Let's call it TPP 14 or 15 as a few more people join. And again, I think for these developing nations, if they joined and America wasn't there, it's a chance for them to shine on the world stage and remind America that it may not be the dominant economic power for all that much longer. One of the other people that's uh, agreed to this, obviously, is Mexico. Uh, so there's Canada and Mexico uh, signing on to this. Uh, and as you said, they haven't signed, but there's an agreement in principle on this. Uh, does that send a message to the NAFTA talks? That, let's see, we, we can get along. We can find agreements here. It's those other guys that are causing the grief here. Yes, and, and maybe even reinforces a relationship. So uh, you might remember that former Prime Minister Stephen Harper sent a letter, I think it was in September or October, to his, uh, to his base. He actually now sells consulting services and sends out a letter every month giving his thoughts on issues. In that letter, he said that Canada had made a mistake aligning themselves with Mexico, that what we should do is abandon Mexico and look for bilateral agreements with the United States. In other words, us in the United States, Mexico in the United States, do it all separately. Instead, I think Justin Trudeau has decided that uh, Mexico is a strong ally in this. We, we are, uh, if you will, a tag team against the United States in NAFTA. We don't just bring all the bad news to the table. Mexico takes its turn, and we go back and forth showing that this isn't just a one-sided view of being what's fair in the world. And I think having TPP-11 allowed us also to share, and I guarantee you, that at these negotiations that are going to take place in Montreal this week and next, uh, clauses are going to come forward almost directly out of TPP-11 with the argument, look, we, too, Canada and Mexico, have agreed to this on whatever the area happens to be. We really think you should come along and to agree with it. 
by singing from the same songbook, we providing a united front, it makes it even harder in these negotiations to, to see America divide and conquer. You, you talked about the intellectual properties, and that, you, you're right, was a very strong sticking point uh, with the U.S. Uh, the, the wording I saw on this, Marvin, says they have suspended that part of the, uh, the provision at this stage. Does that mean that we'll talk about it later or it's out? Well, I think both of those terms. So it's out of the uh, initial agreement. Uh, Maybe try this a little differently, Bill. So let me draw a parallel to NAFTA. NAFTA was signed 23 years ago, but that original NAFTA agreement over 23 years was reopened and new areas were inserted. In fact, one of the sticking points in NAFTA is that what Justin has said is rather than doing these as sidebar deals and then gluing them onto the original deal, why don't we put all of these things in to begin with? So, for instance, we had sidebar deals on Aboriginal rights. We had some sidebar deals on the environment, sidebar deals on on women's rights in the workplace, workers' rights, etc. He's saying, let's put this all into the deal up front. In the case of TPP-11, they've said, let's take intellectual property rights out. We're going to keep talking about it, and if we can find something, we'll cement it back on. But I think, again, remember, there's 11 parties here. It's not just the three in NAFTA, but 11 parties here. Frankly, oftentimes to get 11 people to agree on anything, if you've ever tried to organize a dinner party and get 11 people to agree on the restaurant to visit, let alone what to eat, that's quite a major feat. If we don't have a deal with intellectual property rights but have an agreement to keep talking and look to add it on down the road, I think that's just fine. One of the other sticking points uh, with the China deal, or the, well, I guess there is no deal, but the discussions, and certainly with NAFTA, has, uh, has been the Prime Minister's insistence that uh, what he calls progressive trade ideals uh, be incorporated into this. And that, uh, you mentioned abor- er- environmental, that's certainly part of it, but there are gender equity, uh, fair trade, things of this nature. Uh, the U.S. has basically slammed the door on that. China certainly has slammed the door on that. Uh, yet he seems to have had some concessions with these countries. Yeah, you know, it's again... Uh Glass half full, glass half empty, I guess is the way I look at it, Bill. Uh, uh, as we get closer together economically, there are other social issues that, that also impact our policies in all of our different countries, and it would be nice if more countries would address some of these issues formally in what they're doing. So I think what, what Justin is trying to do is, uh, uh, and, and he's not the only one, by the way, there are other world leaders trying to do this, is to think of this as progressive trade, trade that's not limited strictly to the strict definition of trade, but to these other sidebar issues, and let's get that all in there at one time. Um, so the fact that he hasn't quite got everything he's wanted, it shows a willingness willingness to negotiate, um, and I think that's a willingness we're going to take on to NAFTA as we go or any agreement we strike with any other nation down the road. But it doesn't mean we give up talking about it, and I think whoever the prime minister is, this is these are issues that are going to keep coming back and, and resonating for the next 20 years. Yeah, the, the concern, obviously, was articulated by the United States was he's he's trying to mix human rights issues with trade issues, and they're not very comfortable doing that, at least at this stage anyway. So but but let me ask Let's you about that. Let's around for a second, Bill. You know, if you remember what was going on in Europe for the last little while, here you had the European Union, which was an economic integration, and, and they said, we're just going to limit ourselves to the economy. And then what we saw in places like Greece and in Italy and Spain and Portugal, some of their social policies, things around, around retirement ages and paid vacation and pensions and even the willingness to pay taxes, had just as big an impact on the economy. The lesson out of the European Union is you really cannot limit yourself strictly to the economic policies. 
some of these social policies can also have an impact on the economy, and you need to talk about them up front. Certainly, I think now in hindsight, the European Union probably wishes their initial agreement went farther, and I am willing to bet the European Parliament is continuing to talk about these because they realize now they do have an economic impact. Yeah, but it's not resonating in Washington. That's that's no, the bottom line. Fair enough. Really. Fair enough. Absolutely. Very very little resonates, and by the way, what resonates today may not resonate tomorrow. Well, let's let's talk about that. Uh, they're they're meeting in Montreal right now. Uh, yep. The the delegations for NAFTA. Uh, it's not going well. I, I saw. I'm sure you saw the op-ed piece by uh, former conservative leader Ron Ambrose the other day that suggested it's not a matter of uh, if uh, the U.S. walks away from NAFTA, but when. Uh, the, she feels there's a certain inevitability to that. It's not going well. Does this trade deal have any impact on those discussions at all? Well, that's, that's a very good question. So let me let me start with your initial premise. Uh, I, I, nice that Ms. Ambrose thinks it's not going well. I actually think it is, and, and, and somebody as odd as Donald Trump himself actually said 10 days ago, he thought it was going well. What we've seen in the first five rounds is different positions put on the table. There was a big gap between the fifth round, which happened in November, and now the sixth round in Montreal. Canada, in coming to this sixth round, has brought responses to what we'll call poison pills, four poison pills that America put on the table. The, the idea that the agreement would end in five years, the dispute resolution mechanism, some things around the auto industry, and also our supply management system in the agricultural sector. We have basically acknowledged that we are going to have to make some compromises to make a deal that's palatable, and we're willing to move in these directions, and we're putting those on the table. As well, we took in the United States to the WTO, the World Trade Organization, just about 10 days ago, and are fighting back against what we see as some unreasonable decisions on their part. Uh, Mr. Lighthizer says, well, you know, if you were a good trading partner, you'd just give us whatever we want and you'd never complain about us. Well, that's not a good trading partner. That's a submissive trading partner that just lets you run all over them. I think Canada is right to stand toe-to-toe and be a strong voice at the table, not allow itself to be bullied, and yet at the same time to show some intelligence in these negotiations. Bring forward counterproposals that we can live with, and then ask the Americans, well, if you're such a good trading partner, where's your spirit of compromise in all this? What Rona is speaking about, I think, is that you know if Donald Trump is a take-it-or-leave-it kind of guy, and you've got to come over to my side completely, or there's not going to be a deal, then yes, there's likely going to be no deal at all. But Trump is, is actually not a stupid man, and he's getting pushback within his own party that if he takes too extreme of a measure, uh, the Senate and the House might attempt to clip his wings on this. In other words, if he goes to try to rip up the deal, he could actually be overruled, veto his veto, if you will, within those houses. So he's got to, at least within the United States, be seen as giving this the good old college try. And, and while they may still rip it up or they may only agree to a partial deal, that's another possibility. They'll say we can't get a full NAFTA 2.0, so here's NAFTA 1.8 or something like that. We'll come back to deal with these others later. But, you know, I, I am still hopeful if there's a spirit of true negotiations that we can have this happen, but it's so hard to read the different players involved. The other element to this, too, is, is the depth of the discussion and negotiations that are ongoing. I think we have this middle picture of Christia Freeland sitting across from Robert Lighthizer, and, you know, it's back and forth. But I'm, I'm told there's upwards of 30 subsets of discussions yep. going on in different spots like this, uh, and certainly Ms. Freeland and, and Lighthizer are, are, are part of that, but but that's not where a lot of the, the nuts and bolts are, 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 of the discussion are really happening. Well, and let me take that a step further, Bill. So you're right. There are these separate panels meeting on various different issues, whether it's, uh, say, agriculture or, or the auto industry 
industry or, or high technology or telecommunications, whatever it happens to be. And the feedback I'm hearing, and I, look, I'm not really all that close to it, but the feedback that I'm hearing is that great progress is being made on, say, out of 30 of those fronts, 24 of those fronts. So to think that we don't have common ground is wrong. There is common ground on many, but there are these four, five, maybe six strong opinions held by the United States, which at, to date are a significant barrier to a deal. That is one reason why I'm suggesting you may see a middle ground, especially with the American midterm elections this fall and the Mexican presidential elections, which are going to happen in late summer, that we may get to a point in March or April and both sides say, look, we've got 80% of a deal here. Why don't we call that the new deal? We'll sign that and we'll just agree to keep talking about the others to keep some momentum going. I think that's another possibility rather than that full, if we can't get an agreement on all 30, then just because we've agreed on 28, not enough, we're going to rip it up. You know, again, I think some deal, even a partial deal, is better than nothing at all. Both sides may very well gravitate to that. Well, and as you've mentioned in the past, I think one of the, the subtexts of what's going on here is Trump's looking for a win here in some way, shape, or form. He wants to start, you know, go to the to the Rose Garden and wave his flag about something, and, and NAFTA seems to be the closest thing right now. Yeah, I, 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 certainly on this front, he, he got his tax proposal through. That's another thing, by the way, that makes me think he might be prepared to compromise. He's had a victory, a recent victory on, the, on that, and he really thinks that's going to do an awful lot to help grow the American economy and, and stimulate trade and so on and so forth. So he may not feel he has to win as big with NAFTA. He still has to be able to say, I've won, look what I got for you, but he doesn't have to win you know, 20 to nothing, he can win 5 to nothing and still declare a victory here. So I, I think there's some willingness to move, but it is very hard to read these tea leaves. No kidding. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, thanks. Appreciate the time. Look forward to it, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the U.S. government shutdown uh, has ended. Uh, the deal in place only funds government until about February the 8th, we're told. A uh, new deadline uh, hopefully for a deal for dreamers. So, well, not everybody, I guess, is hopeful for that. It was uh, quite convoluted. If you watched any of the coverage over the weekend after the shutdown took place, uh, you watched uh, any of the networks, whether it was uh, MSNBC, CNN, uh, Fox, any of these. And basically, it was just a parade of senators and congresspeople pointing the finger at the other party and saying it's their fault. You know, they're not putting America first, yada, yada, yada. You've heard all that rhetoric before. So there has been some sort of a deal reached, uh, and I'm not so sure that everybody's happy with that, but at least the government is back to work. So where do we go going forward right now? And how does this happen in the first place, that a government can actually be shut down? Uh, You figure they've got money. I mean, why can't they pay their bills? Well, joining us to try to explain this whole circumstance and and the implications is uh, 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 Gregory Atwaro, who is a professor of political science at Columbia University. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank it's great to be here. Let's let's talk a little bit about the, the character of this. There have been government shutdowns in in the past. A lot of those have been about government priorities and government should be doing this or government cutbacks. The the undertone and maybe uh, the very strong undertone in this one was was really immigration, wasn't it? That's correct. Yes. Why was that such a key factor in, in this in this discussion? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that. You know, immigration has been made a, uh, you know, brought basically made a top priority issue by the Trump administration by essentially uh, uh, ending the DACA program. Uh, Donald Trump has basically forced this onto the legislative agenda. 
Um, Congress has not really been able to do much on immigration, uh, and that's not been for, been for lack of effort. Um, over the past uh, 15 or so years, they have, they have tried to do something about immigration, changing immigration policy, addressing undocumented workers, uh, but they haven't made much progress. And I think that has uh, uh, in a large part to do with the deep polarization that exists between the two political parties in the United States. So Donald Trump has basically forced this onto the the agenda. The Democrats are trying to get the best deal that they can um, being in the minority. Um, In the Senate, uh, the way the Senate operates, there is the possibility for the minority to have more more of a say of what sorts of policies come out of the Senate um, uh, vis-a-vis the the House of Representatives. Um, And so I think the Democrats were, were basically trying to use the leverage that they have as a minority to try to couple the uh, the funding of the federal government with uh, some progress on on uh, immigration policy, specifically dealing with DACA and uh, and Dreamers. Could you explain some of the numbers for us? And, and you know, you look at that compared to, for instance, our, our parliamentary system up here. If, if a government has a majority here, uh, they basically, I mean, there's a process. Yeah, there's you know three readings, etc. But I mean, if you've got the votes, you just ram it through and bingo, it becomes law. Uh, even though the Republicans have a majority in the Senate, the the, the Democrats still had some sway there. How does that happen? So the Senate has evolved into a supermajoritarian institution. Um, it, it, this was a long evolutionary process, um, but the Senate now basically, uh, with with the exception of reconciliation bills, and that's a whole other thing we can get into <laughs> if you want, but, um, but basically you need 60 votes to get anything done in the Senate because okay. in the Senate you can filibuster legislation, mm-hmm. and 60 votes are required to end a filibuster. So that's how the Senate has evolved. It's basically now, uh, we, we refer to it as the 60-vote Senate, um, but the understanding is that you need a three-fifths majority of the Senate now to uh, basically pass any legislation that is the least bit controversial. All right. And and was there a specific bill that w- was on the table right now that was the focus of this, or was it just a, uh, a general malaise? I mean, because we've heard of these shutdowns before, and invariably uh, there can be 11th-hour intercessions to try to get these things done, or we have seen them fail sometimes. But uh, it just seemed as if these guys were very entrenched uh, when, when this whole thing happened over the weekend. Right. Yeah. So the continuing resolution was the piece of legislation um, under, under question. And so the, you know, the, 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 the uh, Congress is supposed to work on this annual budget process that was set up in uh, 1974. Uh, but since that time, the Congress has basically been unable to follow that process. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's annually been the case that the Senate, um, it's usually the Senate's fault, um, but the Congress in general fails to meet the deadlines that uh, it needs to meet in order to fund the federal government. We are, we're on an annual appropriations cycle, and basically, uh, you know, bills have to be passed by the end of the fiscal year in order for uh, the government to keep spending money. Um, the Congress has consistently failed to meet those deadlines, and so uh, when they do that, they pass what's called a continuing resolution, which provides temporary funding for the government to keep operating after the, uh, the, the deadlines have passed, but Congress has not been able to, to uh, enact the appropriations bills that it's supposed to uh, in order to fund the federal government. And so where we ended up was, uh, you know, the, the, the fiscal year expired back in uh, on September 30th, 2017, and so the, the Congress has passed uh, continuing resolutions, um, stopgap measures, basically, to keep the federal government um, running. And so uh, what the Democrats tried to do is essentially couple 
the immigration debate um, and legislative action on on uh, on legislation with uh, 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 w- with the uh, the continuing resolution. And so the continuing resolution needs 60 votes to pass because you need to be able to invoke cloture on that measure if it's filibustered and everything gets filibustered these days. Uh, and so that's how that's how we got to this point. When they say shutdown, that that sounds like a very draconian term. Is is it, is everything shut down, or is it a majority? I mean, I, I, you know, we we heard stories during the weekend uh, from from some of the the folks in the Congress and the Senate that well, nobody's going to get paid. This program's dead and the water, et cetera, et cetera. Was it was it that drastic? No, it it, it wasn't. I mean, there there are certain essential. You you're trying to tell me, Professor? There's a little employees. political rhetoric going on there too. Uh, I know it's hard to believe, <laughs> but it's true. There's, you know, the, you know, we we've seen, uh, you know, uh, uh, the spin machines uh, it, it running, um, you know, in, in, in top gear here um, since, you know, since last week, uh, and that's really what the what I think this fight has been over in the sense. I don't think the the Democrats and Republicans were unsure about how this was going to play. Um, and so they tried to spin it uh, in one way. You know, the Republicans saying, "Oh, you know, they're they're th- this is adversely affecting our our military." Um, the Democrats saying, "Well, you know, this is the Trump shutdown. He's he's unable to govern, unfit to govern. You know, he's not able to lead Republicans. Republicans aren't keeping their promises." Um, uh, and so, you know, this, this this kind of back and forth is is you know what we saw o- over the weekend. Uh, but you know, it wasn't you know if you were. Here and you know, unless you're a government employee, you're probably not going to feel this. Unless you show up at a uh, you know at a, at a national monument, you're probably not going to feel it. Unless you like need your passport renewed today, or or you know uh, you know you're probably not going to feel the the, the the shutdown very much. Um, you know, it was a very short uh, closure, um, and so that we've had longer shutdowns in the past, which th- those have had real consequences. Um, but for the most part, I think this was just kind of a kind of a blip. I think you know the, the rhetoric was really ratcheted up, um, uh, you know, talking about dire consequences. But uh, I don't think those you know, those those hadn't been felt yet. I mean, if the, if the shutdown had continued for another two weeks, say, then I do think there it would have had a real impact. The focus of this, as you mentioned, the immigration and, and the Dreamers, and and what was going to happen with the Dreamers. Uh, it has been kind of put to the back burner, I suppose, with this uh, this compromise. But we're told it's only going to be good for the next 17 days until February the 8th. Is there an inevitability here, Professor, that we're going to be right back in the same position in 17 days? It's entirely possible. Um, the The understanding was that that the uh, the individuals in the the more moderate Democrats and uh, and and moderate Republicans were going to work. Uh, to hammer out some sort of deal for dreamers because we have we have the next deadline for uh, the, the expiration of the continuing resolution but remember also when Donald Trump essentially ended the program uh, back in the fall he gave he basically said uh, Congress has until March to, to get something done and so um, the you know that's another deadline that is uh, that, that is coming up and so I think uh, what's happening right now is that, with with the understanding as part of this deal that that the that the majority leader Mitch McConnell will bring immigration legislation to the floor of the Senate and make sure that it gets a uh, a, a full debate, that 
the uh, that individuals in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are working hard now to try to actually get legislation that um, is viable um, in the Senate. Now, the House is a, is a completely different animal, right? In the sense of uh, there's no promise that this legislation will come up in the House, um, and that and you were you were, you, you, know, you talked about the parliamentary system in Canada. You know, the House runs much more like a like a parliamentary body in the sense that it's it's strictly a majority rule institution. And if the leadership of the House does not want something to come to the floor, they can prevent it from coming to the floor. So the Senate could do all this work. They could pass a compromise measure um, that addresses, uh, that basically reinstates DACA, addresses the issues with DREAMers. uh, But then there's no promise that that will actually uh, go anywhere in the House of Representatives. And as you know, for any legislation to become law in the United States, it has to pass both the House and the Senate. So what? where is the compromise that, that they were talking about trying to reach right now? Both McConnell and Schumer were saying all the right things about trying to work together, bipartisanship, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But my understanding is there's an awful lot of very adamant Republicans in the Congress right now that don't see middle ground here right now. They're supporters of, of Trump's whole concept here uh, and, and don't want to move in that direction at all. That's true. Um, and the question is, whether or not they can come up with a piece of legislation that can attract a large enough majority to get through the Senate. You basically would need 60 votes to get this through. Now, they're, they're, the immigration hardliners uh, in the Republican Party don't have to be part of that coalition. It could be a, a coalition of, that's mostly made up by uh, Democrats, uh, and, uh, and then you have a few Republicans joining them. Um, so that's you know, that's not something the majority party really wants to see, um, that basically the minority party is the party that seems to be driving the result. Um, but there are, you know, just like there are uh, Democrats who are worried about, uh, Democratic senators who are worried about their, their, uh, their reelection in the 2018 midterms, there are also Republicans who are, who are worried about their reelection. Um, and so I think they do want to make progress on this. I think there, there are some Republicans who, who you know, genuinely care about coming to uh, an agreement on immigration and, and coming up with a solution for, for DREAMers. Um, uh, you know, there is overwhelming support in the polls uh, for a solution for, for the DREAMers, and I think Republicans are sensitive to that. But the question about, you know, what is this, what is the, the, the majority or the supermajority that passes legislation in the Senate look like? Is it, is it almost all Democrats and, and, and a handful of Republicans? Um, can they figure out something that will get a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats on, on board? Um, you know, it's it's a very very difficult issue. Um, and as I said, you know, the Congress has not been able to make much progress on it in um, in the in in the past several years. Uh, but I think you know the way that the Trump administration is now holding uh, members of Congress holding their feet to the fire um, may actually be the, the 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 incentive that they need to actually get something get something done. Um, but you know, we're far, far from a resolution. And, um, you know, it would be an amazing feat to pull off something in the next 17 days. Um, or, you know, they, they, they only have about 10 legislative days that they'll actually be in session. Um, so that's not a whole lot of time to, to, to hammer out agreement. And there are, there are deep divisions. Um, and it's, you know, I, I personally am doubtful that they'll be able to uh, resolve anything, but we'll see. Maybe they'll make progress and actually get a bill to the floor that can be debated. Who are the winners and losers in this in this whole thing? Uh, I, I've even heard some some grumbling from Democrats that aren't crazy about the way that Senator Schumer handled this. 
Uh, obviously, with this, some 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 rifts within the Republican Party, uh, a number of folks that are looking at this from outside that that inner circle there in the Beltway and just saying you know, pox on all their houses for the way they did this right now. Did, does anybody come out of this smelling like a rose? Well. You know, the spin machine will continue, um, and uh, the Republicans will try to spin it as a victory for them. The, uh, the Democrats will try to spin it as, you know, as a victory in certain respects. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody really wins from a, from a government shutdown. Um, I, it, I think it's, a, you know, it's not a great way to run a country. Um, there's, you know, it costs a lot of money to shut down the government. This was a short shutdown, and so it's, it's probably not going to the, – the financial consequences won't be that great. Uh, but it's just, you know, it, it, it's just a bad thing to do. Um, and um, it's a shame, I think, that our, that our politics uh, has come to this, that this is this has kind of become routine now, this this idea that the you know, the uh, this uh, brinkmanship that happens. Um, and so um, the uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, the, the parties will try to spin it as victories. Um, you know, if the Democrats do manage to pull off uh, a legislative victory with respect to Dreamers, given the the current context, the promise that McConnell has made to actually bring something to the floor. If they get something done, you know that that will be that clearly, you know, is a victory for uh, for the Democrats. Uh, but I think you know the focus should probably be on the the actual people who are affected here. Uh, so if the if, you know if the if the Senate does manage to pass something, but then it dies in the House, um, you know, I, I don't think anybody really wins from that. And there are a lot of people who are going to be. Uh, you know, badly, badly hurt by by the failure to address this issue. What about Trump himself, who we're told was really on the sidelines? I guess he stayed in Washington for the better part of the weekend. But uh, both McConnell and uh, Schumer seem to indicate that, that the president didn't have much uh, in the way of uh, input into this, this supposed compromise that was reached here. But what it did do is put his agenda back onto the front pages again, too, uh, which which I guess is something that his base would like to see. Sure, um, and and I think the the question is, um, I, I think for the Republicans is how does this play in terms of their strategy for winning um, in the 2018 midterms? Um, so the the question is how much do the Republicans want to rely on their base for the 2018 midterms? Um, right now, you know, just about every poll that's out there indicates that the 2018 midterms are not going to go well. For the Republicans, and so do the Republicans want to try to move away from the, 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 the you know the core Trump voters um, in order to try to appeal to to more independent voters, more moderate Republicans um, by doing something on on immigration, by doing something on some of the other uh, legislative issues that the Senate uh, and and the House are supposed to tackle before the 2018 midterms. Um, so you know the the Republicans could go in a number of directions here. Um, and I think it's, you know, it, it's really, it, it, like I said, it's, 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 it's really hard to see how they get to a deal that actually changes policy. Um, you know, the president has shifted positions on proposals, um, you know, day to day, there's been changes in his position. And so I think it's really hard for uh, the Republican leadership in Congress and the Democratic leadership in Congress to figure out what you know, what will Trump actually sign into law? Um, and so, you know, even if something managed to get through the Senate, manages to get through the House, is it something that the president will sign? Um, and so, you know, whether how Trump, uh, you know, what Trump gets out of the, out of the shutdown, I think, will be, 
intimately related to what happens ultimately on on immigration policy and what the Democrats tried to do in terms of actually getting something um, uh, passed into law. It's going to be interesting to watch over the next 17 days. Professor, thank you so much for the time today and for your insights. Greatly appreciated. You're most welcome. Take care. That's uh, Professor uh, Greg Waro, Professor of Political Science from Columbia University. Uh, it's over, but it ain't over, I guess, when it comes to some of the the confrontations that are going on in the, uh, the Congress and in the Senate down there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.